Let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, as we approach this text of Scripture this morning, Lord, we are conscious that the things that are contained therein are, are countercultural for, for so many reasons and in so many ways. But Lord, we pray that as your people, that we would be guided by your Holy Spirit into your truth and that we would respond to, to your truth with faith and obedience. Lord, I pray that, that you would help us to see in this how you have provided for our needs and in this we see how you have provided for our greatest need. Lord, we pray that you would work in this. Lord, this morning, cause your church to be built up through your word and the power of your spirit for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, this morning, I'm going to be preaching yet another sermon without sin. But don't worry, I'm not turning into one of those best life now preachers who, who doesn't like to talk about things that are negative or uncomfortable. This sermon is isn't about sin because once again there is no sin in the text there's no sin but we're going to see that there is a problem there's no sin but there is a problem we finished looking at the first week of, of god's creation from genesis 1 1 to 2 3 but this morning we're continuing with verses from verses 2 4 to 25 moses' focused discussion on the creation of the first man and the first woman on the sixth day. Remember that Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 marks the first of ten toledotes in the book of Genesis. The first of ten sections that describe what the Lord God is doing with his people. Remember the Hebrew word toledot means generations. So this section begins in chapter 2 verse 4 with these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. The subsequent Toledotes deal with the generations of people from Adam, Noah, Noah's sons, and so on. And last week we saw the Lord God's creation of Adam. We saw the Lord God's care for Adam. And we saw the Lord God's covenant with Adam in the garden. And this morning we're seeing the Lord God's continued care for Adam as he provides for what to this point is one of Adam's greatest needs probably important for, for me to stop here for a moment and, and to come back to an important consideration. In this church, we take the creation account literally. In that, we, in that in taking it literally, we stand with, with Tyndale, with Luther, with Calvin, with the Reformers and the Puritans in interpreting Genesis 1 and 2 as a factual historical record of events as they actually took place. So that the six days uh, of Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 are, are six literal 24-hour periods. The dust was real dust. Adam was a real man. He was the first man with no ancestors. So, so this is going to be coming from a, a literal interpretation of, of, these, of these events. And verse 18 begins, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. You remember that in verse 4, Moses shifted from referring to God as simply God to now the Lord God. He, he's now using the, the covenant name for God. And he, and he does so apart from the, the next section in, in uh, Genesis 3, 1 to 5, the discussion between the, the serpent and Eve. He uses the, the term Yahweh Elohim, 
the, the Lord God, which Lord there means I am. Whenever you see Lord capitalized like that in your Bible, it refers to the covenant name of God. And so here in, in, Genesis, in Genesis 2 verse 18, for the first time, we see the Lord God saying that something is not good. Something is not good. Six times in, in Genesis 1, he had called his creation good, and now he's saying something is not good. He's saying it's not good that man should be alone. It's not good that man should be alone. Now, Adam alone is, is not not good in the sense that it's bad, but Adam alone is, is not good in the sense that, that, uh, that Adam alone is incomplete. He needs someone by his side. Now, God, on the other hand, does not need anyone by his side. God does not need anything. Need is a creature word. God the Creator has no needs. God the Creator has never had any needs. He was perfect and fully complete in and of himself. So God did not create Adam out of any inherent need because God is, again, eternally complete. Now we know from the scriptures that God is love. So God must have had someone to love. There will always be an object for God to love. There must always be an object of his love, not just the potentiality of love in the creation of man. So who then is the eternal object of God's love? God is the eternal object of God's love. It, it, it can't be man because man is not eternal. It, it, it can't be man because man is not equal to God. So, so, so it has to be God. Remember that the name that, that is used for God in, in Genesis 1 and, and also here too, the second half of it is Elohim. And this, this word in, in Hebrew is actually a plural. Here in this week, we have a, we have, we're pointing to, to the fact that God is triune. We saw that also in, in Genesis 1, um, 20, in, in Genesis 1, 26. Let us make man after our image in our likeness. This is plural. So God in and of himself is perfect and complete. Yet, out of the overflow of God's love, he created man. Jesus talk about, spoke of the, the the love in, within the Godhead in, in Genesis, or sorry, in Romans, sorry, we'll get there, in John 17, verses 5 and 20, 24, in his high priestly prayer, he said, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You loved me before the foundation of the world. So again, God did not create Adam as the object of, of his love there, or else there would have been a time that God was incomplete. As C.S. Lewis said, God who needs nothing loves into existence holy superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. Or as Kelly Capick says, the creation of man is the overflow of his eternal triune love. So God created Adam out of the overflow of his love. 
God had someone like himself to love, but Adam did not have someone like himself to love. Adam was alone. Now, some might say that, that Adam was not alone because he had God to love, and, and that's true. But Adam did not have someone, again, like himself to love. God clearly says that it is not good that man is alone. So even with the intimacy of Adam's relationship with God before the fall, before the fall, Adam was here in a sense alone. Friends, solo fellowship with God, even in paradise, was not God's plan for Adam. And it is not God's plan for us. What Adam was lacking was, as the ESV says, is a helper fit for him, a helper suitable for him, corresponding to him, complementary to him, filling up what is lacking in him. And all of these terms convey what Moses is saying here. The Lord God made man as a social being. But to this point, there was no other human being on the entire planet with Adam. So the Lord God's assessment is that it is not good that the man should be alone. So what does he do? Well, to our way of thinking, he'd say, well, God saw there's a problem that right then and there he would create a woman. He'd create a companion for Adam. But he doesn't. Instead of simply providing a wife for Adam, he does something unexpected. He puts Adam to work. He puts Adam to work. Look at verse 19. Adam, or God takes the, all the animals that he had formed out of the ground and he causes them to pass by in front of Adam to name them. To name them. So Adam names the animals and whatever he called them, that was their name. From aardvark to zebra. Now, when I've talked about this previously, I've, I've said it was all the way from aardvark to ziziva. Ziziva is, is a type of insect, and it's spelled Z-Y-Z-Z-Y-V-A. So that's about the last word in most dictionaries. But in this passage, the insects weren't part of that group that passed in front of Adam. It was, it was only the, the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field. Um, and the, it was not the creeping animals, the insects and the spiders and the reptiles and so on. They weren't included here. Now, some evolutionists say that there would have been no way for Adam to be able to name all of those animals in the span of a single day. Well, taxonomists estimate there are, around, uh, not, there are currently about 9,500 bird species alive on the earth and about 4,500 mammal species alive on earth. Okay, it's probably less than, than you might have, have thought, fewer than you might have thought. But Carl Linnaeus, on the other hand, who was the founder of the modern Tax classification system of taxonomy, he was a creationist and he accepted the biblical record. We need to understand, and I talked about this extensively when we're looking at, at um, when we're looking in the, in the last chapter in Genesis 1, that kinds, the kinds that God created there in Genesis 1 are very different from the understanding of species. Kinds are different from species. Many Modern species have come about more recently as a result of speciation. Now, speciation is the, is the development of new species through the observable, repeatable process of natural selection. Okay, that's speciation. 
And this demonstrates the incredible variety that God put into each created kind. And so here in the garden, only a small subset of the species that are currently alive on the planet would have been present on that day. So there's estimates that say there's probably around a thousand, under a thousand kinds of animals that Adam named. And given the fact that there are 3,600 seconds in an hour, Adam could have easily completed this task in a matter of a few, within a few hours. But even still, Adam was here demonstrating an incredible intellectual feat. We can only imagine how powerful Adam's intellect would have been prior to the fall. You can also see that in this process of naming the animals that, God, that Adam is exercising dominion. He's exercising the dominion that God had given to man in Genesis 1.28. As God told him to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it and to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything that, everything that moves on the earth. Now naming something in that culture and to a certain extent in our culture is a mark of authority. But with that authority also comes responsibility. And I, I've said this before, but, but caring for the planet is actually a moral issue. It's a moral issue. We were given, we were given responsibility to have dominion to care for the planet, not, not, to, not to destroy it. Now, I'm, I'm not a, I'm a quote-unquote greenie, but I, I do think that, that, that we have a responsibility to look after the planet that God has given us from, from these passages. But again, as interesting as, as all of this is, at least to me, the animals are clearly not the point of this passage. The, the main point is coming up. What does Adam notice after the Lord God paraded all of those animals past him? Look at the end of verse 20. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So there was a male aardvark and a female aardvark, a male bear and a female bear, a male cougar and a female cougar, a male dog and a female dog, and so on. But there was, each one of those animals had a female counterpart, but Adam didn't. The Lord God here was helping Adam to see his need. And so now God went to work. Remember, this is day six the final day of God's creative work before he rested on the Sabbath. Now it seems that Adam understands that there was no suitable helper for him. So what does the Lord God do? He puts Adam to sleep. He caused a deep sleep to fall upon him. Now just as at other key points in the Genesis narrative, the, the, the recipient of God's blessing sleeps while God acts. Abraham sleeps while the Lord God establishes his covenant with him in Genesis 15, 12. Likewise, Jacob sleeps when God reiterates the covenant in Genesis 28, 11. Now, so although there's a sense in which th this was an anesthetic, an anesthetic event, because, I mean, you can imagine, I don't know if you've ever broken a rib, but it hurts. And so here Adam is having one removed. He's, he's understandably asleep for this process. But the emphasis... The emphasis in all three of those instances is the passivity of the recipient. Adam is asleep while God works. Adam can't take any credit at all for the creation of woman. This is God's doing. This is the Lord God's doing. And so the Lord God removes a rib from the unconscious Adam. 
then closes up the flesh in its place and forms the rib into a woman. Now this was a literal rib and this was a literal woman. The woman is essentially a descendant of Adam. You could even perhaps say that God cloned Adam's DNA in order to make the woman, except for one notable exception, her gender. He was a man and she was a woman. So contrary to what you may have heard from evolutionists about the gene pool, creationist geneticist Dr. Robert Carter has proved that the genetic data of human beings today is consistent with having descended from one man and one woman. From one man and one woman. God created a man and a woman. Friends, gender is not a social or psychological construct. It is a biological fact. God created human beings, male and female, and they're either one or the other. To say that one can change one's gender is rebellion against God. It's saying, I am not what you made me. I am what I want to be. But biology doesn't lie. Only the union of a biological male with a biological female can produce children. Only a biological male and biological female. And God created here in the garden a biological male and a biological female. The Lord God did not make the woman out of dust as he had the man. He made the woman out of a man. She was taken out of Adam's side to show that she is from the same substance as him. Man and woman are one because they come from the same source. And we can see this also in Adam's response. The Lord God presents the woman to Adam like the father of a bride walking his daughter down the aisle. God gave Eve to Adam. This is the first marriage. Ligon Duncan calls this marriage the crowning blessing of God's goodness to man in the original creation. And Adam responds with the first ever recorded speech by a human being. It's also the first poem ever. At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now there's a play on words here because, because the rib is in fact a bone. But the man and the woman are of the same substance. They are from the same source. The woman is not merely valued for her role as a child provider like many cultures then and now. Eve wasn't just given to Adam as breeding stock, but for her own sake, as a fellow heir of salvation, as a fellow image bearer of God. The high value that is placed on the woman in the Bible was not held by other ancient civilizations. In fact, none of the known creation myths from, from other cultures surrounding Israel include any discussion of the creation of a woman. Nonetheless, here in God's word, the woman is highly esteemed. She is highly esteemed. In Genesis 1, 26-28, you can see again that both bear God's image. Both are given dominion over the animals. In Genesis 2 here, she is presented alongside the man, equal in value before the holy God. In the New Testament, we see the continuation of this as, as husbands and wives are again now equal as co-heirs of salvation. 1 Peter 3, 7. So now, now Adam names, names the woman. He calls her woman. Why? Because when he saw her, he said, whoa, man. So that's my, my little joke. But, 
that he called her woman because she was taken out of man. But again, the fact that God, that Adam names her again points to his authority. And so here he refers to as, as woman, which is the, the broad name for all women. Later in Genesis 3.20, he will name his wife, specifically calling her Eve, because she is the mother of all living. So again, the man and the woman are equal. They are equal. But Adam here is given headship. Now, now, Paul appeals to the fact that Adam was created first in speaking of the biblical roles within marriage. And also in, in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2, he speaks to the headship of, of the man and the woman in the context of relationships within the church. But again, we need to understand that, that this is equality in value. There are different roles, but equality in value before God. Now in, in verse uh, 24, Moses makes his own editorial comment. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So the institution of marriage comes from that first marriage. It's an exclusive relationship. The man leaves his family and cleaves to his wife to form a new family. He, he leaves them to join with her singular now, now, you can see that there is polygamy in the Bible, but it was never God's plan. In fact, God, God spoke against polygamy repeatedly in the Bible. One man and one woman are joined together in a one flesh relationship. This is God's plan and purpose for marriage. The Lord God created a family, a perfect love triangle between the man and the woman with God at the apex. The Lord God created the family, a perfect family. And this threefold cord is the cord that is not easily broken from, from Ecclesiastes 4.12. The house that is grounded on loving God will never fall. Now both Jesus and Paul go back to this passage, specifically to Genesis 2.24, in order to explain marriage. Jesus, Jesus uses it in order to counter the Pharisees when they challenged him about divorce and remarriage. And Paul uses it to explain that the relationship between the husband and one wife have an ultimate meaning that, that goes beyond their marriage itself. We're going to explain further about this in a moment. Then in verse 25, Moses writes, And the man and the woman were both naked and were not ashamed. Now there's something ominous about that. Something is coming and it's not good. In our culture, nakedness connotes, connotes immodesty and lewdness and humiliation. Well, that was true in ancient Jewish culture as well. And it's because of what came next. It's because of the next passage. Yet here, before that happens, there is no awkwardness, there is no embarrassment, and it's not because Adam and Eve had a perfect physique. Derek Kidner says, the lack of shame is the fruit of perfect love which has no alloy of greed, of distrust, or dishonor. It was understandably the immediate causality of the fall. And as the chapter ends with the pointed reminder of our vanished concord. So the Lord God knew Adam's need and created a helper suitable for him. Well, what do you think is being taught here? What, what do you think is the point of this passage? Well, for, we need to talk for a few minutes about this word helper. And I've already mentioned this, but, but although 
although the, this, this, the role of, of helper can include that of childbearing, given, given, in the, given the wider context of God's instruction to be fruitful and multiply, in the immediate context, it seems to be broader than that. This is the blessing of, of companionship. Again, this, this word fit refers to, to suitability or to correspondence. And so in that, in that helper defines her role. Defines, it defines the woman's role. It's, it's help in terms of aid or support, of support. Helper in no way, shape, or form implies that the woman is of lesser value. Friends, the Lord is repeatedly described as a helper in the scriptures. For example, in Exodus 18.4, Moses said, The God of my father has been my help. It's the same word and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Or Psalm 146, verses 5 and 6 says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. So you can see that, that God is a helper again and again. So helper certainly does not mean inferiority. Friends, these verses are not meant to be a hammer to keep women in subjection, but to liberate them to what God has called them to. With a wife, Adam would have a peer. Someone like him to fill his need for intimacy, for companionship. Contrary to male chauvinism and contrary to feminism, both of which are effects of the fall, men and women are equal as co-heirs of salvation. But however, also according to male chauvinism and contrary to feminism, men and women have unique roles. The roles of men and women are complementary. They work together. Kenneth Matthews says, what the man lacks, the woman accomplishes. As Paul said concisely, the man was not made for the woman, but the woman for the man. 1 Corinthians 11.9 Man, I want you just to think for a moment about the way married men, think about the way that your wife compliments you. Think about the ways that, that your wife compliments you. And if, if you, you were married, uh, um, but, but aren't anymore, think about, women too, think about the ways that, that your husband compliments you, or, or if, you, if you have been married, about the way when, you, when you're married. We have, we have several widows and, and widowers here. Think about the way that, that, that areas where you are weak and, and your spouse is strong. Think about the way that, that I mean, there, there's some truth to the adage that opposites attract. Do you value the complementarity? Do, do you value the difference that you see in your marriage, in, in, your, in your wife, and wives in your husband. So often wives bring a tenderness and, and compassion to the marriage, an area where, where sadly husbands are often weak. When I think about the, the many ways that, that my wife compliments me, you know, we, we had a, a discussion just yesterday where, where hearing her perspective, I was given insight to, to the situation that I otherwise never would have had. I would be a fool not to, to, to hear my wife's insight and, and to hear the wisdom that my wife brings to, to the circumstances and situations of life. There are all kinds of ways that a helper is fit for our husband, is, 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 is suitable for her husband. 
Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor of the Lord. Men, the Lord God was blessing you like he blessed Adam in providing you with a wife. Have you stopped lately and thanked the Lord for blessing you with the wife that he has given you? Have you made a point of thanking her lately for the ways, for the many, many ways that, that she blesses you? Well, as we sit here again this morning, some of us are married, others were married. For, for some here, marriage is in the future. For some, marriage is in the, in the distant future. Some here may never get married. But whatever your marital status, this passage has something to teach you. It has something to teach you in the way that, that, that God provided in his providence for Adam's needs is the same way that he provides for you in your needs. God knows your intimate needs far better than you do. And any gift that he gives you is out of his, his covenant love for you in Christ. And anything, any gift he withholds from you, it is, it is because he has a better plan for you, at least for now. So as we sit here th this morning, for, for those who aren't married, maybe you feel alone. And, and I'm sure that there's times when you're lonely. But thankfully, none of us is alone in the sense that Adam was alone. There are other people that, that you can engage in fellowship with. For the many, many, many years of my single life as a Christian, I was alone in the sense that I didn't have a wife. Yet I was never alone. And, and of course, uh, God was with me all the time. But I was never alone in the sense that I had a family. I moved to Australia not long after, after getting saved and, and I became very involved in my church. And for a big chunk of my time there, I, I lived next door to the church. As a member, I lived next door to the church. In fact, for, for, for a big chunk of my time as a Christian, I've, I've lived next door to the church. In fact, I live, to this day, I live next door to the church. Now, of, of course, we don't all have that, we don't all have that opportunity. But how important is the church to you? How important are you to the church? And I, I, I really think that especially for those that, that are alone, that, that we, we need to, to come together and to, to be a family for those people that, that God has given to us as our brothers and sisters in Christ. So, so you need the church, and the church needs you. Some of us here are in happy marriages, and, and other of us, others of us are in difficult marriage. When we think about the fact that the first marriage was a, was a perfect marriage, a marriage without sin, you may be sitting here this morning conscious of the sin in your own marriage. Maybe you, you or your spouse sinned against you pretty seriously even this morning. Maybe you look at your friend's marriages in the church and you think, I'd love for my marriage to be like that. Well, I'm not referring here to, to coveting someone else's spouse. That's, that's breaking the 10th commandment. What I'm talking about here is, is when you look at the interactions between, between a, a husband and wife and, and, and you see, wow, my marriage isn't like that. I would love for my marriage to, to be like that. 
Well, I have a couple of things to, to say to you about that. First of all, you, you don't know what their marriage is, is really like. I, I hope that, that you're entering into and engaging in, in relationships in this church where you can really be open and honest with each other about, about the joys and the struggles of life and, and even of marriage. But, but for many of us, we don't know the, some of the challenges that, that uh, the other couples in our church face. All marriages have, have problems. They all have their struggles. Yes, it's, it's to varying degrees, but, but none of us, not one of us can say that, that we don't sin against our spouse or that our, our spouse hasn't sinned against us. But imagine a marriage without any sin whatsoever. Well, there was no sin in, in this marriage. None. But not for very long. It wouldn't stay like that. You know, maybe, maybe some of the challenges in your, in your marriage are to the point where you're thinking, huh, not good that Adam was alone? I think it's not good that I'm married. If you're thinking that, then, then you've forgotten of God's provision for you in marriage as a blessing. As a blessing. Think about it for a moment. Do you think that God was surprised by what was going to happen in the very next chapter? Do you think God was surprised by, by, by what happened with, with Eve and the serpent? Of course not. In the same way, he is not surprised by the sins that your spouse has brought to your marriage. But he still calls it a blessing. Because he's, he's using the sins of your spouse to reveal the sin in your own heart as you respond sinfully to his or her sin. And, and so your marriage, even the difficulties of your marriage in God's hands through the redemption of the gospel become a tool of sanctification as God redeems your sins for his glory. Third, if, if you are, are focusing on, on the sins of your spouse in your marriage, you're really looking in the wrong direction. You have plenty enough sin in your own life before focusing on the sins of your spouse. Friends, the sin in your marriage points to your greatest need, the need we all share. That first marriage, that sinless marriage, points to something infinitely greater between, than the marriage between a man and a woman. It points to the relationship between Christ and the church. And I preached on this about a year ago over the course of a few sermons, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it here, but please turn with me in your Bibles to, to um, Ephesians chapter 5 and look at verses um, 22 to 33. Just very quickly, look at verse, uh, verse, um, verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also the wife should submit in everything to their husbands. In verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So we're seeing here these, this, this, this headship and, and submission roles are being echoed by Paul in the New Testament. But then down in verse 32, Paul explains what it's all about. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The relationship between you and your spouse in marriage 
is meant to point beyond your marriage. It's meant to point to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, the loving, sacrificial headship of a husband is meant to reflect the, the love of Christ as he gave up his life for his bride. And, and the loving, submissive obedience of the bride is meant to, to point to the, the loving obedience of the church to Christ. So the mystery of marriage is that it points to Christ and the church. Your marriage is created to be a reflection of the gospel. So brothers and sisters, in Christ, you have the opportunity to overturn the effects of the fall in your marriage. Genesis 1 to 3 provide the foundation for Jesus, for Paul, for Peter in their instruction on the family. And we're going to talk a lot more about this when we get to, to Genesis 3.16. But, but I really want us just to stop for a moment and to reflect and in your own heart to thank the Lord for your marriage, to thank the Lord for the, for the, the gift of marriage to, to us as a body. To, to pray for the marriages of, of our church, to, to, to pray for, for your own marriage, maybe even to repent of your failure. Husbands, to, to love your, your wife like Christ loved the church, or, or wives, your failure to submit to, to your husband as to the Lord, to confess your sins to the Lord, to ask his forgiveness, and to ask him to help you. If you, are, if you would like to talk more about this and, and, and need some help in your marriage, I'd be happy at any point to talk to you and, and to, 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 to walk through um, the issues with, with God's word in order to be able to help you to grow in this in your marriage. But just please, for a moment, just, just take a second before the Lord just, just, just to pray. Friends, the woman is the greatest gift that the Lord God has given to the man to this point. In fact, next to the provision of Jesus Christ, your wife is the greatest gift that the Lord God will give you in this life. The Lord God makes his own assessment of the situation. You can see it there in Genesis 1.31. Upon the completion of his creation, he says, it is very good. And so in the gospel, your marriage can also be very good for the glory of his name. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for the gift of marriage. Lord, this institution that, that you have created, we know that it is under assault from our culture, is under assault from Satan, is, it is under assault from our own sin. Lord, we pray that in the power of Christ that you would help our marriages to be a reflection of the gospel. Lord, I, I pray that, that you would help us instead of focusing on where 
our spouse falls short, that you would help us, Lord, to focus on where we fall short, but, but not to dwell there, but to focus instead on, on the gospel of Jesus Christ, on his perfect obedience, on his death on our behalf on the cross. Lord, of his perfect credit, uh, his perfect works credited to us, of our sin credited to him. Lord, I pray that in the gospel, you would cause our marriages to be a reflection of the gospel. That your name might be exalted and that your church might be built up. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.